Romans chapter 3. And as you do so, let me encourage you uh, to come back tonight for prayer. And you may say, well, I don't like praying out loud or praying in small groups. And, and I got that, and that's okay. Uh, there are uh, oftentimes in our prayer meetings, people aren't saying a lot and, uh, and saying nothing. But that doesn't mean prayer does not occur. And I say that because we find that in the book of Acts, the church was birthed in a prayer meeting. And God takes very seriously and delight when God's people meet to pray together. We find throughout revival history uh, that God has moved when His people pray. Not that that's a pragmatic way, uh, but nevertheless, please, come back and enjoy the fellowship. There's something about getting close to Christians when you pray together. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? Father, thank you for your word. And and, and we do ask for a great mercy even now that you would speak to the heart of every single person, that your spirit would take his word And that for the unconverted, for the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ, they may know something about him. But may today be the dawning of knowing him, of entering into that kingdom of light, the experience of new birth to where they could sing no condemnation in Christ. And Father, for the believer, uh, protect us from the ever-present danger of just being here in a mindless execution of duty. May we be here to encounter the living God. And may you show yourself strong to your people. And that we be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be more resolved to be the people of God as we take your word into a culture needing desperately to know you. So thank you, Father, for the privilege of an open Bible. Uh, May you do a work in us that is transformational. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we move into the third chapter uh, of the book of Romans. And as we bring uh, ourselves into this third chapter, we find that Paul continues to do what he did in chapter 2, and that is to bring the Jews under guilt before God. He has spent the majority of chapter 1 bringing to bear the Gentile to the bar of God's judgment, and in chapter 2, he has done so with the Jews. His goal is to bring everyone to uh, the fact is that we're guilty before God, that we are indeed a people under the wrath of God apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, to bring us up to chapter 3, he's exposed the Jews for their hypocrisy, is that they have judged others, judged others while they practice the very same thing. In chapter 2 also, in verse 17 through 24, he's exposed the Jew to their pride of religion, to their to the reliance upon the spiritual privileges that they had while they did not judge themselves. And then also in chapter uh, 2, coming up to the end, verses 25 through 29, he's exposed the pride of the Jews, their reliance on external religious privileges. That's very contemporary today. If you are trusting your religion, if you're trusting what you do to be right with God, you are uh, going to be uh, um, falling short. No one can achieve God's favor uh, by being uh, religious. And now in chapter 3, we come to what we could see as an imaginary conversation. He has just really brought the Jews to their knees by talking about privileges and talking about uh, spiritual uh, opportunities that they had. And, And now the argument would be from the Jews, wait a minute, Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying that those privileges do not count? 
So in verses 1 through 8, he's going to show them that the privileges matter. But he's also going to bring and dismantle their arguments, weak as they would be, uh, to these privileges. Now, if you look at chapter 3, uh, it breaks down in three sections. Verses 1 through 8, which the objections of the Jew that Paul is going to dismantle. And then in verses 9 through 12, he will bring this all to bear. And that is every single human being is guilty before God. Uh, the living God with no hope outside the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then beginning in verse 21, we see the transition all the way to chapter 4 and verse 25, and that would be the gospel of deliverance. In a very real way, you can see that there's an interlude here because Paul starts this section out in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And that was the theme throughout our winter weekend, unashamed of the gospel, as Walker shared. And so Paul would start out on this high note of the power of the gospel into salvation. And then from verse 18 all the way to verse 19 of chapter 3, he shows all of us why we need the gospel. And as I mentioned, he would bring every single person to understand that they stand guilty before a God who will not be appeased by, by human effort. And then the interlude uh, ends by showing in, um, uh, in verse 21 and forward the gospel itself. And what I want us to look at today is as, God, as Paul begins to dismantle the Jews' weak argument that their privileges uh, excuse them from God's judgment, he does so in, in a couple ways. Verses 3 through 8, there's a series, actually a barrage of rhetorical questions. We're not going to get there today. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2. Yeah, I, I, I kind of chuckle with that myself when I looked at this. And, and a couple of the commentaries that I read is that they say that verses 3 through 8 of chapter 3 are the most difficult interpretive challenges found in the book of Romans. And so I elected just to skip it. Uh, <laughs> no, we will do that. That's one of the, uh, the blessings of being in a church. We are committed to exposition. We are committed to verse by verse by verse, which means like in other churches that you may want to go topical only so you can skip things that are a little uncomfortable. And so we don't do that here. We'll go verse by verse, and it is what it is. It is the Word of God. We are just simply messengers, flawed at that. So there will be things that you encounter when you read your Bible, and you hear preaching as verse to verse. What you're going to find is things that will pierce your heart and make you very uncomfortable. Don't get mad at the messenger. And so as we come to this section here, verses 3 through 8, these rhetorical questions are very piercing. And what you see in that, I'm already getting ahead of myself, and I really don't know what I'm talking about today on this. But on verses 3 through 8, you see a contrast between the character of the sinner, Jew and Gentile, and the character of God in his righteousness. But that's for another week. Today we look at verses 1 and 2. And what Paul is going to do in verses 1 and 2, he is going to level the argument of the Jew who says, Paul, what are you saying? You're saying that we're Jews and that we've had privileges, religious privileges, spiritual privileges, and they don't matter? Is that what you're telling us, Paul? And Paul's going to say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Then what advantage has the Jew would say the argument? Or what is the value of circumcision? Again would say the argument. And Paul would come back and say much in every way. Contrary to what you're accusing me of. To begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now what are the privileges that Paul has recognized. And now the Jews are going back to say to him. What are these privileges? Well the first one he says what advantage has the Jew. Is that they were a covenant people. He is not dismissing at all. That they were indeed a set apart people. That they were a covenant people, a chosen people. And we accept that because it is true. God chose these people, the Old Testament, to be his prized possession. And so Paul is saying, no, there's no, I'm not saying there's no value of being a Jew. Your ethnicity, your privileges as a Jew, they matter. And then also look in verse 2, we see, and what is the value of circumcision? Well, Paul, if you look at 25 of chapter 2, Paul has already said that is of value too. Verse 25 says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. 
He will also, in chapter 9, when we get there, no laughs, please, uh, we will get there in chapter 9. And yes, it's a long journey through Romans, but it is a fruitful journey through Romans. It is without a doubt the most fundamental book a Christian needs to know. Because in the book of Romans, you see the gospel unfolded like nowhere else. And you see the sinner exposed like nowhere else. And you see the conduct that a Christian is supposed to live after they've been radically changed by the gospel. But in Romans chapter 3, Paul would say there's great advantage of being a Jew. Yes, you are a privileged people, spiritually as a Jew, but you're also in your religious uh, uh, privileges. And in chapter 9, when he gets there, uh, we get there, he's going to already list a whole bunch of advantages that the Jew has. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ. So Paul would say to these Jews, you are misinterpreting what I've said. I am not saying at all that you, Jew, are without privilege. But here's what he is really saying to the Jews. He's saying, yes, there's a difference between you and the Gentiles because God has set you apart. God has given you special privileges. But when it comes to the issue of salvation, there is no difference. Your difference is because God chose you as a covenant people. But when it comes to the issue of salvation, you are just like them. And so he makes this distinction now so that they can't argue that. Because he's already said, listen, you judge others condemning yourself. You don't practice what you say. And so he puts the Jews actually bring a self-indictment upon themselves. And Paul would say, I am telling you straight up, you need the gospel just like the Gentile. And if you're here today and you're counting on your religion, if you're counting on your morality to get you to heaven... You are deceived, and you will never make it. Because the standard of entrance into heaven is absolute perfection to the perfect law of God. And I would challenge you with this right now. And if you want, any one of you that's not a Christian today, or if you think your religion is going to get you there, here's what you can do. Don't misunderstand what I'm going to say. You do not need the gospel of Jesus Christ to save you if you've done this and are doing this. From the moment you were born... To the moment you die, you have kept every one of the moral laws of God, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and you've done so not only externally, but in your heart. Anybody want to stand up and say, that's me? Not a single one of you. You know why? Because you can't. And so hence, he, he brings the religious Jew now in the same camp as the Gentile. But what he does do in verse 2, and this is important, and this is the thrust of the message today, which has great application for us, especially in a culture today that wants nothing to do with the Bible, a culture today, even a religious so-called Christian culture, if there's any of those people left, that says the Bible doesn't really matter. Well, Paul would say in verse 2 to the Jews, Yes, much every way your privileges matter. And the chief one, look what he says, to begin with, to begin with, you've been given the oracles of God. You have been given the oracles of God. Now we're going to look at that phrase there. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. We're going to look at that, those few words and look at three things. Number one, the priority of the privilege they were given. Secondly, we want to look at the privilege itself. And then thirdly, we want to look at the responsibility that's associated with the privilege. Now, the first thing he says here, to begin with, that's what my translation says. Other translations say chiefly or first of all. What Paul is saying to the Jew right now is, yes, you've been given all these long lists of privileges, but here's the most important one. Here's the one of the, of the greatest importance. This is the first time that he would say that. But don't you find it interesting that after he says that in the, uh, this, this is uh, to begin with, this is the first one, this is the chief one, there's nothing after it. There's no second, there's no third, there's no fourth. Why does he do that? He already has done that in chapter 1, uh, verse 8. Look what he says in verse 8 of chapter 1. To the Romans, he says, first, or chiefly, 
or of great importance. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Now, when I read that, I'm saying, okay, Paul, what's next? What's second? What's third? He doesn't do that. And in dealing with the Jews here and their understanding of privileges, what he tells them is that what I'm about to say is the most important privilege that you were given. It wasn't your circumcision. It wasn't even your covenant setting apart. It's the most important thing that you were given. And by the way, it is the most important thing that you sitting there right now has been given to you as well as to me. And it is the next thing, the privilege itself, the oracles of God. The oracles of God. Now, what is, or what are these oracles? It's a very interesting word that Paul would use. It's defined, it's defined as a divine utterance. It's messages that are gathered together as a collection that comes from divine revelation. That's what the oracles mean. They may think, well, well, the Gentiles would not have understood what he's saying. On the contrary. This word that he uses, oracles, a divine utterance, a divine revelation. The, the Gentiles, when they would have heard that, and they would, have, they would have got this too, their eyes would have popped open. The Jews understood that God had privileged them and giving them his divine revelation in the Scripture. That's what this is. It is the divine message given by God. So the Jews had no problems when he says the oracles of God. But what about the Gentiles? They would have understood. Because the pagan, the pagan religions of the heathens, all through time, they've used the word oracles. And when an unsaved pagan, a false religion, would have heard some false prophet or some debauched religious leader say, this is an oracle of our God. It was a false God. But when they would have heard the word Gentile, that this is an oracle from our God, they would have stood up and listened because they knew it was very important. They knew that this was a revelation from a God, though false, that didn't exist. They knew that they needed to pay attention to this. And so Paul now, he begins to tell them, Jew, you've been given a lot of privileges. And the most important privilege you've been given has been the oracles of God. Or we're now, from now on, we're going to say what it is. It's the word of God. Or the words of God. Now Paul is obviously referring to the Old Testament here with the, uh, with the Jews. But we can take this because we are in the covenant of the new. We are able to take that and expand that. That the oracles of God to us as Christians is from Genesis to Revelation. William Cooper, you may have known of him. The 18th century poet who was a dear friend of John Newton. In the expected depth and eloquence of Cooper. This is what he said about the Jews and the privilege of the oracles of God given to them. Cooper, in this poetic language, states, they and they only amongst all mankind received the transcript of the eternal mind, were entrusted with his own graven laws and constituted guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets, theirs the priestly call, and theirs by birth the Savior of us all. The word oracle, as it applies uh, in the scripture, it only appears four times. We can look back and see all the prophetic writings and all the prophetic utterances uh, of, of those prophets of old. Those were oracles. Those were the, the word of God. Spoken, now it's written. But we find the, uh, the other, the second appearance of the word oracle is in, with Stephen, the first martyr. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, in his speech, his very, very apologetic speech, Stephen says, This is the one who was in the congregation, the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, speaking of Moses. He received living oracles to give to us. So all from the beginning, God has a plan that he's going to reveal himself to us in creation, but he also is going to specifically reveal himself to us through the word of God, these living oracles. And Stephen would say, this is what he gave us as a privileged people. It would also occur in the Hebrews text where the writer would say that you need to return back to the basic principles of the oracles because they had forgotten 
in the fourth appearance is with Peter, when Peter instructs the church about the use of gifts. And here we have the voice or the, or the speaking gifts of the oracles of God or the word of God. I don't want to spend any time on that. I just want to show you that in this context, it always points to what it is. It is the word of God. And so what did the Jews do with this? What had the Jews done with it? And this would be the indictment upon them by Paul. You have failed to be stewards of the oracles. You have failed to be stewards of the word of God. And he says in verse 2, we've looked at this, much in every way, there's the priority to begin with, the priority of the word of God. The Jews were entrusted with the word of God. And to be entrusted means to be given a stewardship. It means to be given um, a responsibility for, to care for one. And so we already see that all through the journey of the Jews, that they had not been good stewards of the oracles. They have not adhered to the word of God. So my question then, as I work through this, and now with you, with you, what about us? This isn't just about the Jews. What about us and the word of God? When we look at the word of God, and I gave you an insert, which is an addition to the, uh, the outline, we're going to work our way through that. But I want you to ask yourself the question. First, as a Christian, are you being a good steward of the Word of God? Are you being a good steward? Are you being responsible with your Bible? Paul says, listen, you've been given a great privilege, you. You've been given the Word of God, and you've been entrusted with that. God is going to hold you accountable for what you've done with that Bible. And so... In order for us not to be like them, we can't look around and say, look at the apostate church. Look what they're doing with the Bible. Look at all these religions out there that had their own books. Let's look at them. We can't. We need to start right here. And we need to ask ourselves individually, what are we doing with our Bibles? We've been entrusted with the Word of God. I know you understand this, and I want to remind you of this. We are standing on the shoulders that have gone before us. We are standing on the shoulders of those who have died for the Bible. That have given their life in translation work for the Bible. We are standing on the shoulders of the Tyndales, of the Wycliffs. We are standing on on the shoulders of men and women who have labored to ensure the word of God is passed down from generation to generation. Some of you in the sound of my voice are first generation Christians in your family. You You have a responsibility to make sure that doesn't end there. You have a responsibility. Parent, you have a responsibility. Your greatest responsibility to your children is the Bible. Not only taught, but modeled. And the greatest responsibility that God has given the church, and we'll look at that here in a minute, is the responsibility of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is how Paul said, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It may not be comfortable to listen, listen to today. It certainly isn't comfortable when I look at in my life and way too many times I've taken for granted that I have multiple Bibles on my shelf. And it may be uncomfortable for you that you have taken for granted the fact that you have access to a Bible. And it may be very uncomfortable to you that there is enough dust on your Bible that you have to blow it off because you haven't been in it. I want us to take a look at the privileges and the responsibilities that we have towards this Bible. The Jews, you say, well, this this were the Jews. This also is us. One of the weaknesses in the church... There's many. And it's a burden that we have as leaders. It's a burden that I hope uh, uh, all of us have in our church. Is that we are burdened to ensure that we are a word-centered church. Not only in what we say and what we preach. But how we practice and how it shapes our lives. And when you look at what's happening around our country. 
and you look at how churches are falling away, and you look around a number of Christians, it's alarming to see how many people quit going to church because of COVID. COVID didn't change the Bible. Culture doesn't change the Bible. And when you look and see all that's happening, it could very well be another fulfillment of Amos's prophecy where Amos says that God has sent a famine to the land and it is a famine, not of food, but of the word of God. There is much bad preaching out there today. There's much churches that profess to be loving and yet they will deny the scripture. There are Christians and Christian leaders who will look around the culture and they will celebrate what God calls abominations. And God has already told us what He thinks about same-sex marriage. He's already told us what He thinks about, you know, abortion. These are cultural things that are occurring that have become celebrated as blessings as well as acceptable lifestyles and the reason why is because the church has failed to proclaim the authority of the word of God and when Christians dismiss the Bible this is what you get in culture this is what we get and this is what the Jews got how many times were they taken into captivity how many times were they oppressed by their enemies it's all because of the lack of responsibility for their oracles. Everything rises and falls in the Christian life and the church life on how we view and handle this Bible. Let's take a look at it as individuals. And now it's you. It's just imagine just you and just 101. We're sitting in my office and we're working our way through this. Go to 1 Peter. We're going to look at three passages in 1 Peter. Paul's told the Jews, your first priority privilege is the oracles of God and you have failed to maintain responsibility for it. We draw the application for us and we should ask the question, are we, failed? Are we failing to be good stewards of the Bible? I've said this before and I want to repeat it because it's so important and it's a reminder of myself. You live in a world that is anti-God, it's anti-Bible, it's anti-Christ, it's anti-biblical ethics, it's anti-everything that has to do with Christianity. And that world that you live in, it is not going to let you just get a pass when it comes to your Christianity. There are one of two forces that's going to shape the way you, you live. You are either going to live by the currents of the world, which is, as I just said, anti-everything Christianity, or you are going to be shaped by the word which is anti-world in everything. And you have to choose for your family. You have to choose for your individual life. What is going to be the shaping force in your marriages, the shaping force in your kids, the shaping force on your work ethics, the shaping force of your participating in church? You have to decide, am I going to be shaped by the world, which is anti-God, or am I going to be shaped by the word of God, which is anti-world? And you have no third option. You have no third option. Well, here's three responsibilities we have for the Bible. As the Jews failed their, their responsibility for the oracles, let's not fail ours. I think for so long in the country that we live in, the church of Jesus Christ has failed their responsibilities concerning the word of God. But I don't want you to take that as a beat down today. And I don't want to take us as being negative. There's too many negative Christians that always want to look at what's wrong instead of what's right. And that's not giving us a, a, a pass on what's happening. But the gospel is good news. Jesus Christ is good news. And let's focus on not so much how broken we are. There's room for lament. I get that. We should lament more. We should confess more. But if we're all about looking so far inside that all we see is the bad, how are we going to tell the people the good? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. As individuals then with these oracles of God, with the word of God, here's the first thing. 
that we are privileged and responsible for is that you must be convinced and believe that the Word of God, the Bible, is God's means of becoming a Christian. Is God's means of giving you new life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth or obedience to the word of God, to a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, that's not taking up religion. That's not saying I'm going to try to be better. I'm going to be more faithful to church. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the very same thing that Jesus Christ said in John 3. You must be born again. And I don't want to insult your intelligence, but what, what did you have to do with your physical birth? Nothing. What do you do with your, with your spiritual birth? You respond, you respond in faith and belief after God does the work of regeneration in your life. He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. God has from the very beginning of time to this very day, he brings people in relationship to himself through the word of God, written word of God, proclaimed, pointing to the living, the logos, the living word of God, Jesus Christ. That's how you get born again. You see where Paul says, I didn't know what sin was till thou shalt, said, thou shalt not covet. And so it's the word of God, the Bible. That's why you need to be in a place. And thank God that you are in a place. As flawed as our preachers are, you're in a place that we take seriously. You must be born again. And that instrumentality is not some subjective experience you've had. It is based on the truth of the word of God. In the very beginning of time, in the very beginning of creation, how did God make the world? And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. God always does his work through his word. And the first thing as a Christian, you must believe that is the word of God coming to you. Now, there's various ways it comes to us. And I'm not trying to get us down to one. Not everyone gets saved by the Romans road. And I'm not saying that there's a one size fits all, but it will be by the word of God. And the authority of the Bible tells us you must be born again by the word of God. John Wesley, he said this, it's wonderful. I am a creature of day passing through life as an arrow through the air. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering, hovering over the great gulf till a few moments hence I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Here then I am, far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone. Only God is here. In his presence I open. I read his book for to this end to find the way to heaven. Wesley cries out, give me the book. Give me the book. So the first thing, then your responsibility as a Christian is to believe that this book is the means by which you became a Christian. Because if you rely just on your experience, and I'm not dismissing experience, don't say that. You cannot be lack experience in the, Christian, uh, in the Christian life. If you understand God's love for you and you strive to love God, it involves emotion. It involves experience, but it wavers. But if you're basing you being a Christian because some experience you had, that's not going to last, and the devil's going to have a field day creating doubt in you. Because experiences are, are fa- uh, experience, you may say, well, I, I'm, I'm locked in. I know this experience. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible never tells you to rely upon your experience to verify you're a Christian. Experiences come and go. And the older you get, you know what happens? I'm starting to experience this phenomena, and I don't like it. Is the older you get, you forget things. I asked someone that was older than me, I said, hey, is this only a passing thing? I mean, can I go back? And they said, this is a one-way trip. You're going to forget things. And your experiences can be manipulated by the devil. And what will happen to the subtle debt is, instead of you trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as written by the Word, you'll trust in experience. 
Experience never saved anyone. The gospel saves. And the gospel is a message of objective truth outside of us. That changes us from within. And so if you're a Christian today, you anchor your, your hope on the Bible that says you must be born again and all that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's what you hold your hat on. And that means if the Bible's taken away, where's your assurance? Where's your assurance? So as an individual then, you have a responsibility to believe that this book is the word of God that produces new birth. And if you're not a Christian here today, and surely a crowd of this size or on, on the uh, live stream, someone may not be. Be Wesley. Give me the book. Give me the book. Because this book is the way to eternal life. The second thing about a Christian, look at verse 24 of 1 Peter. You must rely upon this book, the oracles or the word of God, as the only stable and enduring thing in life because it is. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Aren't you so glad that you can read this Bible? You may not understand it and you won't understand it all, but aren't you glad you can read this Bible and what it says is true and it will endure every single thing you go through in life? It provides promises that will strengthen you in darkness. It provides comfort when you are comfortless. It provides the only proper lens to see what's messed up in this world. It's the only way that you can have healthy relationships. Everything you need for life and happiness in this life and eternity is found in this book. And by the way, only this book. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure, sincere milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to the pure salvation that's in Christ. That's the third thing we learn from Peter. As an individual, you must believe this is the only means that you can become a Christian. Secondly, you must rely upon this book as the only stable and enduring thing in life. And thirdly, you must commit to it as a means of growing in Christ. Hence the first Peter 2. You can't look at another Christian. You couldn't even look at you can't look at your pastors and say, I really desire to grow in the Lord. And then the next question is asked of you, well, how are you doing in the Word? And you say, well, I'm not really much in the Word. And then my response to you in love would be this, that you really don't want to know the Lord. A true desire to know Him always manifests itself in the discipline to seek Him. You can't say, I want to know the Lord, and I want to be a good Christian, but you are lazy, and you're not reading your Bible, and you're not trying to be a doer of what you're reading. You cannot simply have those twos. Those are the highest of contradictions. And so individuals, Paul would say, Jew, you've not, you've not maintained your responsibility to the oracles. And so I would say, Christian, have you maintained your responsibility as an individual? Are you ready to die for the truth that this book tells you how to be born again? Or are you feeling the pressure of an ecumenical world that says there's other ways to God except what your way is? You must dismiss that without question. And the second thing, are you being responsible to rely upon it as the only thing in your life? Or are you looking for the government? Or are you looking for worldly things to bring some, some hope in your life? If you are, you might as well go jump off a bridge. There's nothing under the sun that's going to bring you hope. There's nothing under the sun that's going to bring you satisfaction. There's nothing under the sun that's going to bring you contentment. It is only by total reliance upon the word of God that Peter says remains forever. That's it. And then the third thing as an individual, are you growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jerome, one of the early church fathers, he said something that's very penetrating to the soul, very brief, but very sharp. To neglect the scriptures is to neglect Christ. I see a lot of unstable Christians. I see a lot of Christians who are all like this. They're all over the place. They're trusting on... They, they, you know, they woke up this morning and it was pretty nice outside and I'm, I'm ready for church. They tossed to and fro by their circumstances. They're tossed to and fro by their emotions. And when I talk to those type of Christians, and I know what that's like. I'm not some super Christian. 
But if your Christian life is like a roller coaster at an amusement park, you are relying far more on your experience and your emotions than you are the unchanging, powerful Word of God. Let's move on to the church. What about the church? What about us as a congregation, us as a, as a body of believers? What's our responsibilities to this? My goal today is I pray you as an individual that you understand that you must have a heavy dose of this Bible, and I would argue every day. Because if you don't, the world is going to sweep you away and you're going to become so indifferent and so just kind of going through the motions of being a Christian, you're not going to have the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. And if you don't have the reality of Christ, how do you tell the world out there about him? You won't. And if you're not a Christian today, I beg you, understand you only have one way to get to God and that's through Jesus Christ. And he's not revealed by looking through the starry night. He's revealed through this book. And I would say if you're a searching person looking for Christ, looking for a God, and you're on a journey, you come to me and say, hey, can I help you? I'm going to say, absolutely. Here's a Bible. Let's get together and read it. Let's take a look quickly at the church. The church. So what is our responsibility to a culture that is so anti-us, which is really anti-Christ? Here's the first thing. As a church, and whatever church you attend, if you're a visitor... You make sure this is true about this church. The first thing when you go and look for a church, the first thing you need to look at is the strength of its pulpit. And I don't say that because I'm a preacher. You need to look at the strength of its preaching. And the strength of its preaching is based on this. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's the first responsibility and privilege as a church. Again, as you look for a church, or you're seeking to be in a church, don't look for a church, what it can do for your kids, okay? Uh, come here. We got, we got a lot of young people here. This was pretty exciting this weekend. Come here. Be a part of what's going on. God has been good to us. But don't look at for a church, what are you going to do for me here? What's the quality of the nursery? And nursery matters. What's the quality of youth? And that matters. What's the quality of our senior citizens? That matters. All that matters, but that's not the first. You don't go look for a church for what you can get. You look for a church that's biblical. You look for a church that's biblical. And the first responsibility of us as a church and the churches at large is you must accept this book as the exclusive, absolute authority of all of life and eternity. This has to be viewed with conviction by the church that this book is the absolute authority without wavering in all matters of life and eternity. We'll say, well, that's not very popular in the world. Our world is marked by what? Intolerance, narrow-mindedness, inclusive, and you know what? As a church... We're intolerant. We're narrow-minded. We're inclusive. In love. and truth. The world is intolerant. It's narrow-minded. It's inclusive. In hate. In hate. When someone asks me, and it happens, someone asks me, says... Well, why are you so convinced that, that there's only one way? And, uh, and then the following will be like, um, that makes you pretty intolerant. It makes you pretty narrow-minded. I said, I am. <laughs> I am. I'm very narrow-minded. You know, I'm very intolerant. And if you want to come to my church, we're also pretty narrow-minded. And we're very intolerant. Because if we're going to profess to be biblical Christians, we have to be that. But oh, by the way, when you come to our church, you're going to have a hard time getting out of that because uh, we're going to love you. And we're going to love you enough to tell you the truth. And we're going to strive to model the truth for you. And a Christian who is narrow, a Christian who has intolerant, and a Christian who is inclusive, meaning that we don't grade sin, we welcome sinners under the control of the love of Christ, that's attractive. 
that's attractive to the world, our narrow-mindedness, our intolerance, our inclusiveness, that's attractive to the world. Why? Because it's bathed in the love of Christ and His truth. So first responsibility we have is we must accept this Bible, whatever the consequences may be, and it could very well be martyrdom. Who knows? It will certainly mean persecution. And if you want to try to be loved by the world or liked by the world and also in favor with God, you're not going to be able to do it. Here's the second responsibility of the church. We must not only, as the Jews fail, we must not only accept this as the exclusive, absolute, authoritative word of God. We must rely upon it as the source of our identity, our practice, and our mission. I want you to look briefly at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we work on our vision for the future, and I believe the Lord has showed us favor, we want to make a big difference in our culture. As we, as we strategize, as we do some evaluations, as we look at us as a church, which is important, and lay the, the roadmap ahead as God would have us, this is what we want to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 2. I want you to see how these believers... Their identity, their practice, and their mission was on and from the Word of God. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God that He has chosen you. There's the identity. There's the identity. Loved by God, chosen, adopted into the family. Christian, your identity is found in who you are in Christ, not what you do or your economic status or your heritage. That's what the Jews relied on, their heritage. No, your identity is what Paul says in verse 4 of these Thessalonians. You are chosen and loved by God, adopted by Him. Now let's go on. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators, imitators of us and of the Lord, for you receive what? The word. The word is the instrumentality of new birth in the Thessalonians. But this word then became not only the instrumentality of their new birth, it became their marching orders. It defined their mission. Read on. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. But the example wasn't just moral. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith have, has gone forth everywhere so that no one need to say anything. Do you see how this church was saturated by the word of God and it believed the word of God was authoritative and it also directed their identity, their practice, and their mission. That's what we want to be. We want to be a Thessalonica church. And you have responsibility to be a part of that if you call this place home. And then finally, I want to hurry with this. Is in, in the culture we live in, the church of Jesus Christ, it must, be con- it must be convinced that this word is authoritative, exclusive. We're not to tamper with it. We're to believe it. The second thing, we must rely upon this book to identify who we are, what our practices are. That's why every single ministry we have here, it must go through the lens of the gospel. It has to go through the lens of the gospel. If we look at a ministry, let's just take basketball ministry, since I kind of like it a little bit. <laughs> what if we say, well, we're going to have church ball, but uh, we're not going to give the gospel anymore. We're not going to have halftime because some of the guys might be offended when we say they're sinners going to hell. Well, the minute that someone on the basketball team, if that would be me, and it's not going to be, If someone would say, well, you know what? We'll just have basketball and we'll just develop friendships with those guys. Well, the first thing we're going to do is to quit having church ball. Because if the gospel is removed, there's no reason to have it. The church must be committed to this practice of the gospel, which comes from the word. And finally, uh, we must defend this gospel or this word with uncompromising and compassionate conviction. Remember what Peter says in the council in Acts 4? They charge them not to go and speak anymore about Jesus. And Peter and John says, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. We cannot but speak what we've seen and heard. 
You can't be silent. You can't be deceived and think, I'll just live the Christian life and people will watch my life and get saved. No one gets saved by an observed life. Now, it may set the stage for the gospel, and it will. But the gospel is a message to be proclaimed as well as to be affirmed in our lifestyle. And it must be with the conviction that Jude writes that we must contend for the faith in a culture that wants nothing to do with our message. And so what does that mean? That means if we're going to be good stewards of the oracles, good stewards of the word of God, then we must band together as individuals who've experienced the new birth by the word, growing in the word, we must band together as a church so that we can send to the, the culture around us the only hope for them. And that is the word of God. And may God, may God band us together as a church a church that prays together, a church that loves together, a church that studies the word together, and a church that bands together to go out there in the world to show the power of the gospel. And friends, as I mentioned, and I'll close with this, is that we have been given a stewardship of the Bible like the Jews. The Jews failed in their responsibilities. I pray we won't. God never guarantees that local churches will stay in existence. He does say his church will always stay in existence. But not every local church. And you can drive through the state of Rhode Island and you can find churches that are now art museums. And you can find churches that are now doing different purposes. May God help us to be good stewards. Not only because the world needs to see the gospel. is because as a good steward you're going to give an account for the gospel. You're going to give an account for the word of God in your family in your church, and in the community. Father, thank you for the great truth of, of your word, and thank you for helping us. As co- uncomfortable it may be, because all to a certain extent, we must confess, we have not handled our Bibles correctly. That, Lord, we have taken for granted the privilege of a Bible where there are, are Christians around the world that walk many miles just having one page of a Bible to share it with other Christians. Help us, Father, not to take for granted Help us to know that uh, you will hold us accountable for the stewardship of the Bible. But let us not be afraid of that. Let us understand your great desire that we would be used to give this word out to a culture that desperately needs to see it. And when persecution rises and all the pressures of such, please, Father, help us not to cower away from the suffering, but to band closer together and rejoice like they did in the early church. In Christ's name, amen.